Thank you for watching episode 27 of The Kindness Rebellion. This episode is with Colin Williams, an activist and comedian. And uh, it's awesome because I met him at the rally to save the Great Salt Lake when he uh, gave up to give his speech. It was solely about like how to communicate with people on uh, really difficult topics and, uh, and how to kind of engage with people who have kind of very difficult opinions such as like climate change isn't real or something like that. And uh, I just felt like it was very, the very ethos of the Kindness Rebellion and it really compelled me to just go and talk to him right afterwards and say, hey, I want you on this podcast. Um, and I'm so glad I did because in this episode, Colin really outlines like all these amazing techniques on how to talk to people about such complex things in a way that you are going to get somewhere, not where people are just butting heads and uh, you know engaging with trolls and all that shit. It was, it was such a good conversation. And like I said, it really brought, really brings it back to the foundation of the Kindness Rebellion, which is all about building understanding through these types of conversations. And, uh, and that's why I am just so excited to share this episode with you. It's also kind of why I'm outside right now, which is uh, how the Kindness Rebellion began. Um, it was all about trying to have these kinds of deep philosophical and uh, engaging conversations out in, the out in the world of nature. As you may have guessed, uh, the audio is always the hardest part, but you know, it's my birthday today, so I figured uh, I could do whatever the fuck I wanted. So <laughs> um, make sure to listen to this episode, subscribe, like, share, all that good shit. Um, because I really, really love this episode and I genuinely appreciate the time that Colin gave to me. Um, and the, just the amazing ideas that we discuss in this episode. And uh, I really think you're going to like it. So check it out. This is a podcast about rejecting tyranny and oppression by cultivating both systemic and individual change. I believe the only way to create this kind of monumental change is to inspire understanding, love, and kindness. From there, we can work to embody these essential values in our cultural systems and in our individual lives. My hope is that by effectively communicating with anyone and everyone, we can establish a shared vision for humanity and explore new ways of living to build a better world for all of us. I'm your host, Nathan Jones, and this is The Kindness Rebellion. Colin. Hello, thank, hello, Nathan. Dude, thank you so much for being on The Kindness Rebellion, man. I really Absolutely. appreciate it. No, this is, it's perfect uh, that you came up and talked to me because our, our missions, our goals, everything we're doing aligns so mm, well. That perfect. It's good to be able to talk with I'm so glad to hear that. It was, it was very serendipitous because like... I just ended up uh, attending that. It was essentially the the rally for the end of the legislative session for the uh, to save the Great Salt Lake. Um, it was like a march um, to the Capitol, and um, I was I would just kind of went went to it very last second. I just saw it pop up in my feed, and I was like, I gotta go. And um, I've honestly loved started to. I've been going to these things more often lately, and um, I found that it's very much. Uh, it's 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 a place where a lot of the people that are like my tribe are coalescing, and uh, and when I heard you speak about um, you know just how to have these difficult conversations with people, I was like it, it just really resonated with me, and I really valued um, everything that you were talking about. So um, just uh, thank you so much for just you know kind of just agreeing, being like hell yeah, let's do it. No, so, this is perfect. Cause one of the things is is teaching people how to have these difficult conversations requires people knowing to begin with. Um, mm. And I think that's that's something that so many people desire. 
Um, now, whether or not they'll be so happy when they realize the work that goes into it uh, becomes a whole different level. But I think every one of us has some sort of, especially since you know 2016, has had some sort of major relationship in our life with someone we care about that it feels like you can't have a discussion with this person that you love, that you felt like you knew for so long because it's just it feels like you're just going to end up arguing and angry and hating each other. And I don't... As much as we want to still be able to, to have our values and not give up our values, I don't think most people want to give up those relationships. Mm. You know, they want to be able to repair them. They, they love these people. They just don't know how to have a good discussion with them that doesn't evolve into an explosive fight. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I've noticed that too. Like it was really sad to to see people being willing to like tear apart relationships over um, really ideologies and oftentimes like misinformation that like it in some ways it didn't even seem like it was truly relevant to that relationship. And therefore to me, it didn't seem like worth destroying that relationship over. So I guess that's kind of what, like one of the first questions that I'll start with is like, at what point is it even important to maybe, maybe end a relationship over some type of ideology in your opinion, you know, cause like it, to me, especially with like the, the, the values of the kindness rebellion, I, I see connection with each other as being more important than maybe being right. Um, and I'm kind of curious about your thoughts on that overall, as well as when you think it's valuable to have these kinds of very conflicting and controversial conversations. Yeah. Um, and this is kind of one of the debates that even pops up in, in the areas of people who are trying to have these conversations. And my personal line of where I don't think it's worth having the conversation is if the person isn't going to have the conversation in earnest with you. Mm. If they're just going to be trolling, then you're not actually going to be doing anything. Mm. I will have a conversation with someone that I vehemently disagree with as long as that is what they actually believe uh, and they're not doing it from a, a trolling standpoint. Mm. Uh, but if, if it is something where it's just someone who's just going to be trolling, you know, if you're just going to talk to someone who's just trying to, you know, pop off a few things and deliberately make you upset, mm -hmm. then it's probably not going to be productive. And w time is the one thing that we all share the same. It doesn't matter if you're Bill Gates. It doesn't matter if, you know, you're uh, a person, an unsheltered person on the street. You only have so much time. Mm -hmm. And so I recommend to use that valuably and just not waste it with trolls. Mm, that's a great point. I, I especially like the authenticity in their argument actually matters a lot because I think that that helps give us the opportunity to actually try and understand their point of view mm -hmm. because we're, it's like, wow, you're actually passionate about this. Like you actually really care about this and really believe in it. I got to try and understand this because it makes no sense to me. But yeah. When they're trolling, it's like, you don't even care about this. You're just trying to trigger me. Yeah. Um, and I guess that kind of, uh, it partially answers my question too. Like, is it even worth, uh, in, like engaging with people online about this kind of stuff? This, that's a whole other debate that's also kind of gone on. Um, so one of the groups uh, I've, I've kind of worked with and studied with a little bit is called Street Epistemology International. Um, and they there's people that try to do street epistemology online. And street epistemology is just getting, is analyzing where people's ideas come from using questions instead of attacks. Um, and it's not necessarily trying to get them to make a specific change. It's trying to figure out how they release their conclusion and how they're so sure about that conclusion. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I tend to find with online communication, uh, even when I try to use it online, you don't have a long enough conversation to really get to the depth. And also people are not used to people being honest and genuine. 
<laughs> that even if they're not a troll themselves, they're like, this person is clearly just trying to screw with me. Yeah. So uh, it, it can be it can be less productive. Um, I, I think I, I, there's still there still needs to be a place for it. I just think we would, it's important to first master the in-person with the people where you know you're having a genuine conversation versus a faceless person and then try to advance it in the steps beyond that. Mm, definitely. But I think, that's, I think that's a really good point that you make about that. What did you call it? Epistemological street talk? Uh, so street epistemology. Street and, epistemology. Um, it's, so it is just literally analyzing the idea of where someone got their assuredness in their belief mm. and kind of asking questions about, you know, where, where first of all, where did this belief, belief come from? You know, uh, how are you so certain in this source? They use things like the outsider test where you kind of compare and it's like, well, if this exact same sort of situation happened, um, in this in this different thing, like example, you know, people always have these examples of, well, you know, I had this personal, uh, you know, s spiritual experience, um, you know, that proved to me Christianity was true. And you're kind of asking, you know, it, well, if a Muslim has that exact same level of experience that have that exact same personal feeling deep within that confirms to them their Muslim belief is true, then how do you know that, you know, that that experience that you had, how do you know that that is valid, whereas the experience that the Muslim person has, who's completely different belief system for the most part, you know, how, how do you tell which one of those is more valid? And kind of getting down to the actual deep ideas of how they're so sure and what they believe in. Wow. I like that a lot. That, that's honest. That sounds like a very effective technique. And that's actually, it's kind of... Uh, I'll, for fear of going off on too much of a tangent, but I, that's kind of how I ended up like uh, leaving the LDS faith, is, is, is having that same sort of uh, thought process, not knowing that it was a street epistemology. But I actually, what I love about that entire concept overall is, um, you know, the, the fundamental tenets of the Kindness Rebellion is establishing connection through understanding, love, and kindness. And I feel like that, that, uh, that street epistemology really speaks to the the need for trying to understand mm -hmm. um because it, it is really trying it's not about like well i'm right and if you're not agreeing with me then you're wrong it's more like where are you coming from like how did i love how you asked like like where do you how did you reach these conclusions what were those sources how how did that actually like really inform you in terms of uh your beliefs now so once you've kind of reached that point with somebody where maybe you kind of say like okay i see where you're coming from now but you're still not convinced um like do you feel like it is still worthwhile to try and like you know engage in this like conversation with them this topic you know let's let's have a an example of like maybe um uh maybe like the the covid vaccines or something something really uh something really um controversial that can be explosive and honestly has, has torn a lot of um people apart from each other um let's say they they've kind of told you all these things and um and you kind of reach this point of like okay I see where you're coming from with that. Is it really a matter of debating facts at that point, or do you think it um, kind of boils more down to uh, pulling apart those emotions? Uh, so all of the studies have shown that, unfortunately, facts don't work. Mm -hmm. um, COVID-19 vaccines are the exact reason why I started spending so much time uh, devoting to, to studying the better conversation methods because uh, of differences my father and I had where I just literally had to hit a point where um, he wouldn't respect my boundaries of just saying, let's not talk about this. Mm. And so instead, I just had to cut off all communication because every conversation would end up in that exact mm. same, um, you know, debating facts back and forth, which studies, again, have shown don't work. Uh, people, we like to think that we're all logical. But, you know, even myself, I, 
I, there's an emotional component probably behind some, when you start digging all those different levels down, there's some sort of emotional component or some sort of, you know, preconceived idea that really ends up driving it versus a lot of solid facts. So that's where it's, it's not that you're going to change people's minds all the time. Mm. Um, some of the best methods right now that are being used, deep canvassing has about a one in nine success rate from a 15 minute conversation, which is amazing compared to everything else. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, you know, 11%, which is better than nothing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> which is usually where we end up at. Uh, <laughs> but even then, you know, it's not going to be everyone, uh, but at least with a framework, even if you don't change someone's mind, if you can at least have a framework where the conversations you have are civil, they do don't explode and you can maintain that relationship while disagreeing it's gonna be a better outcome than just mm. being like well i cut off my entire family because they're all you know have crazy opinions on COVID, and so mm -hmm. i lost this gigantic piece of my life because we didn't know how to have a civil discussion yeah like i think that that's i think that's the part of uh um this whole experience that's been just so um really painful for me because like I keep wondering like how is it worth it to to get rid of like our our very cherished relationships over over ideas and I mean it, you know maybe that's um minimizing like what the these experiences and events have done to people I mean COVID was uh, you know a very traumatic time for everybody really but um in terms of like like uh, ending relationships over the controversialness of it. Yeah. That just that just can't seem worth it to me. But I also really like what you said that it's it's not about um like trying to be right or trying to change their mind. It's more about uh, it's like can we have a civil conversation about this? Can we can we still agree with each other and still care about each other um even though, you know, we don't agree on this one topic. And I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's it's better now though, because uh, using these fundamentals, I you know once I sat down for a long time and like I made sure I wanted to practice, I want to get everything right, I want to have all these these skill sets. I sat down and had a in a, I was back up in Portland and I said, hey dad, you know I want to sit down, let's discuss things. And I had a four hour long discussion that previously would have just ended in a lot of anger and a lot of you know yelling and and fact changing and. Uh, or, you know, facts back and forth, and here's my fact from my fact newsletter, and maybe. here's my, yeah. Um, or, you know, just some sort of giant gish gallop where they're just throwing all of these different things, and you're like, well, we don't, we, we can't address any one of these because you just uh, threw 50 things at it. Mm. Uh, but instead, it was a four-hour conversation. We've rebuilt our relationship, and there's still some, you know, uh, rough times where uh, we, we're having conversations that I'm sitting there and, you know, you do have to hold yourself back from your, your gut reaction because it can be very instinctual to just be like, are you crazy? Yeah. <laughs> um, that gets you nowhere. And kind of more importantly, I think even if you aren't changing someone's mind in that instance, if you cut off a relationship with someone, this is kind of what a lot of the, the modern uh, movements are, are looking at, is if you cut someone off and say, we're not talking, then you have zero chance of of presenting different ideas. They're gonna get stuck in their own bubble, in their own circles, they're only gonna hear the same thing. And more importantly, there's we have this kind of innate tribalism that happens. And so now you, you go from being their family to becoming the other. Mm. And their reaction and their instinct, even if you come back later on with the most brilliant and wonderful fact that should prove everything possible, <laughs> there you're going to be an other versus all of the us which is their us group is going to be all their friends they've been listening to mm. who all circled their wagons 
uh, and everyone else cut them off. And it's not going to, in the long term, it's also going to hurt your possibility of, of maybe eventually reaching a place where they kind of go, okay, you know what, maybe um, I made some logical thinking errors previously. Yeah, and I think what I, what I really like about that um, the most is, is it, it feels to me like you're deciding to sort of like rank order certain values. Like in this instance, you, you decided that you're like, I'm going to learn how to communicate well because I want to maintain my values, but I also want to maintain my relationships. And so, and I also really like the idea that um, if you focus on kind of just staying, um, you know, connected and as, as a family, then you can also be like that sort of um, just that other perspective, that mm -hmm. other narrative that kind of will play in their mind so that, I mean, I think that eventually, even within an echo chamber, um, people will, will actually, you know, be confronted with new views. And if, if there's a, if there's a new view that like they've already heard before and they're like, oh yeah, my, my son believes that. And then they can kind of already like advocate for it or even like explain like oh well we were talking about this and this and this like it's it's starting to grow that seed um i think that's that's kind of the the metaphor that i've always really loved for these types of conversations is it's more about planting a seed than it is about i've got to be right here i've got to be right well and it gives you a chance to maintain the humanity mm. because you still become that connection uh, oftentimes when when we are so willing to do things that i i personally find to be you know some relatively morally disgusting things that people will, will opt to do. Most people don't believe what they're doing is evil. Yep. They would not do it if they believed it was evil. They have some sort of rationalization in their head, and often it involves because they, they've dehumanized or they're not seeing this other perspective from a human perspective. So at the very least, you can continue to maintain some humanity that may make them when, when they're thinking about it, even if they have all of these other sources, they might still have that little seed of humanity left that, when push comes to shove, might might be a really important factor. Mm, yeah, I love that. I, I love that idea of just maintaining your, their humanity and your own humanity, like maintaining your own values, ensuring that you, like, you're not um, compromising anything that's very, very important to you. And that kind of that kind of makes me think that uh, the I don't know about the situation with your dad specifically, but a lot of times when I have these kinds of conversations with people, it's very abstract. Like I'm debating with them about abstract concepts that we're not actually like dealing with right now. It's not like, oh, like there's a trans person here in our group and you're trying to like literally uh, pretend that they don't exist or that they have no value. Like that's not happening. It's usually just like, oh, okay, well, we're going to sit here and talk abstractly about this. And so I've kind of found that, like, for me, it's like, oh, is it is it worth it to really um, to sit and have these battles um, when it's not actually, like, affecting me? But I, I, I'm kind of curious to hear your perspective on this because, um, you know, I know some people may listen to this, and, and especially with COVID, they're like, no, like, my maybe a family member died from COVID. Mm -hmm. Like, this affects me very personally, this this. Um, this threatens me. This truly threatens me. And so it is worth cutting off connections um, over certain topics. I'm curious to hear hear your thoughts on that. So that's one of the things I love about the deep canvassing approach to to invoking kind of change and, and people reanalyzing their preconceived ideals. And that is one of the very first fundamental building blocks is whatever the topic is that you're you're discussing bringing that humanity to it by presenting both your story that is a very human story but more importantly they, they found that when you when you presented your story and gave it some humanity that was effective a little bit for about a week worth of change but when you asked the person you know do you, 
is this something that personally affects you? Do you know anyone? Um, so like, there's a great example online you can watch with deep canvassing about uh, they're speaking with someone uh, at, at a door and you know, they're asking her, you know, do you have anyone in, in your life that's affected by this? And it turns out that um, they had uh, a, uh, a, a niece or nephew um, that was trans. And so there was this person in their life that they were then able to use that reflection on. And it put the humanity in that discussion. Mm -hmm. So odds are, even if someone hasn't been, you know, affected by it necessarily themselves, they have someone they care about in their life that is in some way affected by it. And sometimes you have to dig down. So I, I mentioned this at the, at the Fridays for Our Future in that speech, but one of the examples given by the, one of the deep canvas instructors was she was having a conversation with someone where they were talking about climate change and how it affects people. And you know, she asked them, you know, are you affected by this? No, do you have anyone that you know that's affected by this? Can you imagine someone who'd be by affected by this? And he said no on all of those, which you would think that's kind of a, like a dead end, but that she kept the discussion going in a very cordial manner and found out that this was someone who he loved fishing and he loved hunting. And it turned out that his local river uh, had been polluted to the point that he couldn't fish in it anymore. And he really felt like no one really cared in government about, you know, keeping this river clean so he could go fishing. So someone may not even think that they care about an issue, but it, there there is something probably in their life that you can tie back to. But if you cut off a conversation or if you know your conversation gets cut off because it becomes hostile you won't have a chance to figure out what it is that humanizes it for them and shows them not that this is something that they should care about but it's something that they do care about and they just didn't realize it yet mm, i like that a lot can you can you actually explain deep canvassing it, it, it sounds like that was kind of like the first like building block was like uh establishing that humanity that human experience um, but can you explain kind of that overall process? It sounds very interesting. Yeah, uh, so if you, if anyone remembers Prop 8, which was the proposition in California to legalize gay marriage, there was canvassers that went out, they thought that they had the numbers to get the vote pushed through, and then they ended up losing the vote, and they were very surprised. So the the deep, now Deep Canvas Institute went back and they said, you know what, let's ask people why they voted against it that we thought were going to vote for it which seems like a radically simple idea, but no one had done it before. <laughs> uh, and they, they developed, they teamed up with psychologists and they sat down and kind of developed this new thing, actually listening to people. And they developed a new method of canvassing that it is more time intensive. You're, instead of just quickly going and talking to someone for two or three minutes at a door, you actually have a longer extended conversation and maybe it's you know, 15, 20 minutes with them. But the kind of the, the key things is, is identifying and creating that humanity, sharing these personal stories, uh, and really creating a connection with the people and showing them the humanity behind it at mm -hmm. the door in, in a relatively structured way. Um, so one of my things, I, I'm still trying to work on ways to, to change both deep canvassing and motivate interviewing mm. and street epistemology to create something that's kind of a little bit more universal because deep canvas does rely on a script mm. that you're kind of basing some things off of. Um, and I'm just, I realize I should have already pulled it up. I have one of this kind of one of the broad um, ways that they they handle things and with their scripts. But I feel like a lot of people don't necessarily have all of the tools that they need at that point in time mm -hmm. um, if they're operating off of a script. Street epistemology is really great at being universal sets of principles mm -hmm. that once you really get good at them, you can apply to anything. But they are deliberately not designed to try to change people's mind. That's mm -hmm. like kind of one of the big things in that community is we're not just trying to change people's mind. We're trying to get them to analyze why they believe the, what they believe. Mm. Which from activism standpoint, 
I love getting people to analyze it, but if we need to make sure that, you know, trans kids still have access to gender affirming healthcare, uh, I, I want to make sure that they have that access. I, I want to affect some sort of change. Um, and I think a lot of that can happen at the dinner table. It can happen with your friends and family and discussions and not necessarily going door to door or talking with strangers. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's where I kind of want to meld the two together and what I've been working on kind of as a, as a method for the church of protest to be able to use is combining the two. Mm -hmm. But deep canvassing has free training. Anyone can attend. Um, it's so deep canvas Institute. You can Google it and they do free trainings. It's three hours, two days. They do it over zoom now mm. ever since COVID. So anyone can attend. It costs you nothing. Mm. What they do ask is that you go and help them at a phone bank like afterwards, mm. which is another three hours. Yeah. But like how many times do you get, like groundbreaking psychological instruction and they're like yeah it's free could you just maybe help us out like can you apply it real <laughs> yeah, quick could you we're gonna, we also want we're gonna help you you know do this in the real world too like it's great practice um so that's free street epistemology has different meetups salt lake city has one but there's there's different international meetups all across the board that are also free you can watch the videos online for free everything the people who are dedicated to this work are not doing it for profit which is mm. amazing so you can learn all of these things you can sit down and you can check out Street Epistemology International, and you can see these example videos from a bunch of different people applying these skill sets in different ways, some of them imperfect, like admittedly, like mm -hmm. you can, if you know Street Epistemology, you can sit down and watch a video, and it makes you realize no one's perfect. Like yeah. even if you know the principles, you are going to screw up, but that's okay. Yeah. Like it's like anything else. You know, you just do the best you can, and as long as you're trying the best you can, then it's okay. I like that. Yeah, and those sound like really good techniques just for like, um, just to dig deeper and really get kind of, uh, again, like an understanding, but, uh, something else you brought up that I'm, uh, kind of curious about is just like, uh, you know, it feels like a lot of the, a lot of the issues that we're dealing with, it feels like we like, we need change now. Like it's, it's, it's yeah. not like, oh, cool. We can have like decades of conversation and, and really try to kind of change minds and hearts through, you know, a slow, beautiful process and like letting them reach it on their own time. It feels like we need to do it now. Like, especially that like climate change, like it. It, it's kind of terrifying. It feels like like we just don't have time. So how do you how do you try to balance those 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 tactics of, of just we we need change now, but also we have to be able to dig deeper and, and and help people maintain their humanity. How do you how do you kind of balance those? So that's deep canvassing again is great because it has a, a call to action, mm. and that's one of the things I want to kind of integrate more into the the SE model is having some sort of actual call to action at the end where. After you've had this discussion, you know, you're able to circle back and say, you know, quite literally, so, you know, now that you've realized X, Y, Z, um, do you think, you know, the next time that this pops up, you know, like when there's, you know, maybe like a voting issue, um, you know, can, on a scale of one to 10, where do you, where do you think you'd still sit on this? And this is kind of a key with both deep canvassing and street epistemology is this kind of scale where you start a conversation, finding it where someone has their beliefs on a scale of one to 10, how you know, sure are you on this or, you know, where do you kind of lie on this scale? And it kind of gives you a way at the end of the conversation to, ga to gauge mm -hmm. how much progress you've made. And there's usually at least a little movement, um, even if it's not, you know, huge. Yeah. It's not, you know, going from like a 10 to a 1. If someone has a deeply held belief, it's rare that you're going to completely shatter it. Mm. But it might be a thing where the person was leaning more towards, you know, voting, uh, you know, against uh, trans people being able to use... Uh, the, the bathroom that matches their identity uh, to being like, you know, I think I probably would now. It might go from like a, you know, they were like a six, maybe like more towards the, the voting against it, but then they're like, you know, I probably will. You know, they're not going to 
sit out and stand there and be like, okay, good, I'm gonna join you at the next door and we're gonna yeah. convince all those people. But it's enough of a movement. Um, so, so integrating those kind of calls to actions, those reflections back uh, to, to actually get people to think about what they can do once they've realized where they, where they actually stand or how it actually affects them. And once you've put that humanity, kind of giving a next call to action of, so here's what we can do with this humanity. And, you know, I, telling people again doesn't work great mm-hmm. as a principle. So my kind of gentle way that I, I'm building out is just the, the question of, you know, like, you don't have to, you know, next time you go in to, to the voting book, obviously you get to choose what you want. But would you at least, when you make that vote, think about, XYZ scenario. You know, mm-hmm. Think about your this person that's affected the next time you're making that vote. Mm-hmm. So you're not telling them, you're just asking them to remember the humanity when they make their choice. Mm. I like that a lot. Yeah. And I and I guess that's kind of all you can do, right? Yeah. You, you can't you can't <laughs> force them to change their mind or you know, and, and you don't want to go down the path of uh, you know authoritarianism and austerity. It's it's I th- I think that's um you know something that like most of us hate. Like we don't know we would not want the you know, what we might consider the other side to be like forcing us to take on any sort of ideals. So um, I'd hate to ever do that to someone else. Yeah. I think it can just be uh, stressful, frustrating, and grueling, like knowing that like, yep, I'm going to have to like establish our common humanity, our shared humanity, and uh, and just plant a seed and hope it can grow healthily. And, you know, it's frustrating to me as someone who wants 100% change. Mm. Uh, I would love that. I would, um, that's usually, though, called either uh, brainwashing or fascism. Is like when you, <laughs> you have to accept that for people to have their humanity, they're going to make some mistakes as well. Yeah. Um, and you got to be willing to forgive them later on for those mistakes. That's a whole different thing. Mm-hmm. But understanding when we look at all of these different votes that we see, and I remember watching the, the 2020 election, Oh, sorry, the 2022 election. And people were like, yeah, you know, America firmly stood against fascism and said no to all of these crazy politicians. And I'm like, you realize that we won most of those votes by 1%. To me, that's not a really firm stance. No, not at all. But that's shaky at best. (laughs) Like, I'm not like, "Uh, most of America is still on board with this. But that also shows you if most of these votes, when you look at most states, most, most things are going on it's relatively narrow margins. It's, you know, 1%, 5%. Like, you can, you're considered basically good to go if you have a 10% lead in the polls. They're like, yeah, you're going to be fine. You don't have to do much work. So if, if you have something like deep canvassing that has a 1 in 9 shift, that's 11%. Look at the last thing that you really cared about and see how much it lost a vote by. Hmm. So if you have, and again, this is people who would be going from voting one way to another way. So if you have a 50-50 vote, and you shift 11% from voting against it to for it, you now have a 3961 vote. It's actually a 22-point difference. So even if you can only get 5% and it's 50-50, that goes from 50-50 to 45-55. We don't need an extreme amount of change in order to be able to to, to get the humanity back in into our laws. Mm. And, you know, I, I personally have a little bit of an issue with the entire concept of like, you know, being able to make change based off of like a 55, 45% margin kind of thing. Like, you know, those kinds of like large swaths of changes, but you know, it's, it's where we're at right now. And, and, uh, and I think that's, that's the balance. It sounds like that's the balance right now to get action is literally like, we need just a simple majority um, in order to make the change that needs to happen. And I think, um, I think that's a, 
a tough battle, and I'd like to see over time just us as humans um, get to a more maybe decentralized decision making process, as well as and um, as well as just building more of a, a norms around like consensus and things like yeah. that. Well, I'm a fan of things like ranked choice voting and mm. parliamentary procedure. My my thing with activism and that I, I run into with a large number of people is we do give up any progress for the sake of trying to go for perfect. And there's so many times I've had to do things that uh, I'm like, I don't like this at all, but it's better than the opposite. We are unfortunately stuck right now in a binary system mm. and saying that we're not going to participate in the binary system feels good. But in that meantime, when I say like, fuck it, it's not going to be the, I don't want to choose between these two evils, but then things become more evil and I could have stopped it from becoming even more evil than it is. Like there's that certain amount of moral culpability when we talk about, you know, the famous quotes from, uh, you know, uh, this is going to be Godwin's law, everything devolves to Hitler eventually. But when we talk about Nazi Germany, the only thing that's required for evil to persevere is for good people to do nothing. Mm. And if you at least move the football one yard, instead of having it move back 10, at least make some forward progress while drastically trying to alter the entire system it's in. Mm. And if you have enough of a groundswell of people, eventually become a block where either they have to pay attention to it and they have to modify some things. Or, or, or you know, that whole, like, fascism thing. Um, either way, though, <laughs> <laughs> at least moving a football forward for, for, the, for the moment and at least trying everything possible... I have a hard time um, not trying everything possible and then feeling uh, okay complaining. I think, yeah, yeah, for sure. I think that is uh, extremely valid. Like, you, you can't be advocating for massive systemic change and then ignoring what's, like, actively happening. Um, and, you know, this is something that I, I think um, people can get pretty frustrated with uh, quite often is just, you know, whenever you want to have like immediate change now versus like overall mass systemic change, you got to try both. You got to try both at the same time because you have to work with what you have right now. And like you said, moving that football one yard instead of letting it fall back 10 um, versus uh, just trying to opt out and only focusing on the large um, mass systemic change. And, that, and that's hard and can be frustrating for people. But um, unfortunately, I think I think it's the reality. Yeah, it's well, I just have to full court press and do do everything possible for the meantime. Um, and, and from that, from that sociological factor, when I'm, whenever I'm looking at things that we're doing or trying to do, I talk to a lot of different activists that I also want to burn the whole system down. I also really want to, uh, punch a bunch of Nazis. And I really, there's like so many things where I'm like, I am totally on board with those emotions. Here is the small problem. Um, those people then become painted as victims. You don't get the entirety of society on your side, especially when you have these giant media apparatus that isn't going to paint you in a good light. Mm -hmm. A lot of people aren't going to look past the basic news headline, and that's that's assuming that the news headline is even going to be neutral and it's not from one of the sources that's going to demonize and radicalize you. And it becomes a lot harder to, to fight and say, no, we're the good guys if people are seeing you as this, you know, the, someone who's who's harming things, who's taking things away from them. Um, I'm, a, I'm actually really not a fan of the idea of defund the police as mm. a slogan. Interesting. I support every single idea behind it, but the first time I heard defund the police, I was like, this feels like this was something thought up in a right-wing psyops think tank in order to turn people against police reform. Mm. Because 
what you're doing with that sentence, I always like adding the three words, defund the police, refund the community. Mm. Even if you completely support abolitionism, telling people what you're taking away from them is not going to get them on your side. You need yeah. to tell them what you're giving them. Yeah. And so that's all that people saw. People only saw that slogan. They didn't dig into all the things they agreed with of, you know, increasing mental health services. Because whenever I talk to people about the fundamentals of defund the police, they're like, oh, yeah, that's that's what I would like in my community. I just don't want the crime to begin with. I'd yeah. like to avoid that. Yeah. I'm like, so that's what that was. And they're like, well, why do they call it defund the police? I'm like, I know. I, don't, I, I, I didn't choose the slogan. I've chosen something <laughs> different. Um, but that's, again, what, the people are going to be having these base gut reactions. And if you don't have the chance to have that conversation with them, if you don't have the chance to humanize it and kind of explain it, which oftentimes we don't because we're going to get in these angry arguments with facts instead. Mm -hmm. um, all they're going to see is their news headline, all of their friends, and even if they support every piece of what you're, you're doing, if you are now this demon figure and this non-human and just, oh, they're just the person who wants to burn everything down mm -hmm. and just take away everything I have, and they don't understand what you're actually giving them, then you're going to either have to impose your will on them mm. or you're going to lose. Yeah. So you're going to, at some point in time, have to get the majority of society on your side. You're going to have to have that conversation where they realize why they're on the same side as you. And it's going to be a lot better to do that before you light everything on fire. Because <laughs> at least if you have all the people, the French Revolution worked because all the people were on the side. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. If you got to get all the people on your side... And then you can burn everything down. Yeah. <laughs> but if you burn everything down, you will lose a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And then even if you get your way, it's going to be some sort of fascist dictatorship that's not going to be, people aren't going to like that either. You're not going to be at effective at, at reconstructing anything, yeah. anything better, anything new. That's, I mean, that's another fundamental tenet of the kindness rebellion is that, you know, we have to reject tyranny and oppression through understanding love and kindness because, um, you know, that, that method that we've seen over and over again of just like burn everything down, destroy, murder, kill. Um, it sort of sets the, that as the bedrock. That sets that as the principle for for any meaningful change. But um, I really like what you said about um, just, or I guess the, what I kind of understood from that is just the language matters. Like being able to to talk with people about these things in a way that can um, maybe not necessarily try to dance around their triggers, but mm -hmm. can just be more cognizant of like what kind of emotions you're going to be evoking in people. Um, that's going to make a huge difference in the overall success of these like campaigns and these these um, you know calls for change and things like that. So, um, and and you know I I I, I full heartedly agree with defund the police. And then I I do one hundred percent see what you're saying. Like like I, I people get immediately turned off. Mm -hmm. They're just like they're just like well the police keep me safe and uh, I don't want to just lose the police right. Yeah. And um, I think that's very. That that is still valid, even though they probably would agree with the idea that like, hey, police should not be the primary solution for all of our social problems. Yeah, and even like police are like, well, I don't we want to be the Swiss Army knife of things. Yeah, and there's so from a scientific perspective, this isn't just like opinions, but one of the things with when you're when you're talking with someone, there's a lot of people familiar with the flight or fight or flight system. Mm -hmm. So when someone is actively uh, in that mode. They're actually like when they're when they're combative, when they're defensive. They're actually using a different part of their brain for what they're talking about, what they're thinking about, with the decision making, and they're actually using the limbic system, which is the fight or flight mode. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I love is a nickname of there's soldier mode and there's scout mode. So mm -hmm. essentially, they're in soldier mode and they are combative. They're not going to seek out or take in any new information because their brain is literally in a different part of it's it's functioning from a different part of itself. And it cannot take in that new information. 
So if you want to, from a neurological perspective, have people be able to take in the new information, you have to get them out of that limbic system. You have to get them out of that soldier mode and that fight or flight into a mode where they're comfortable so they can actually process and take in new information. Like it's on a biological level that when people hear that thing to get their ankles up, and that's why it is important to kind of know what will, you know, kind of create that triggered emotion in them mm -hmm. and to deliberately avoid that and, and make sure that the things that you're saying, you can still keep every single one of your values and principles and morals, but just making sure the way you express it is in a way that they are going to hear it instead of fight against it. Mm, I like that a lot. And uh, this, this whole conversation is making me realize that um, it requires a lot of emotional intelligence to kind of have these types of conversations or to even build these kinds of campaigns and calls for change. Um, I mean, how familiar are you with uh, emotional intelligence and how, how necessary do you think it is to have it in, in all of these types of conversations? Uh, emotional intelligence is... It's, it's lacking um, in, in, our, in our culture for sure. Mm. With the kind of the skill sets that have been laid out, I think the more important things that are, are being done require not necessarily, even on a baseline. So deep canvassing actually showed that they get the exact same results of change from people who's doing deep canvassing for the first time versus an experienced person. Mm. So you would, you would think that someone would be coming in, maybe they're less emotionally intelligent, they're gonna have less effect. But because of the, once you build up this structure, kind of the most important thing is to actually follow the structure. And this is where I think people are gonna have the most difficult time with it, but it is so worth it. And I'm gonna make an argument for why mm -hmm. um, in a second, is holding back your own anger. Mm. It's not so much having the emotional intelligence, it is holding back your own anger holding back your own reactions and being able to temper them so that you can listen and follow the structure and have compassion because there's a lot of people are, are going to as long as they feel heard you're going to avoid a lot of those triggers mm -hmm. as long as they don't feel like you're fighting them they're going to give you more leeway with compassionate curiosity mm -hmm. and th the thing that i that i would say as far as the why why everyone should do this uh, or why everyone should should utilize these practices is I would like to think that the reason that I am an activist, that I'm doing all of these things is because I want to make the world better, that I'm not just doing it for myself. I'm not just doing it to make myself feel good. Mm -hmm. I would like to think that it's not just some sort of self-masturbatory process and that I really want to help other people. Yeah. We know from the data, we, everyone I'm sure has had a conversation where they've just been trading facts back and forth. They feel like the other person isn't listening to them. They feel like they're not being heard either. Mm -hmm. Like all you're doing, we've all had this fight, well, like you're just waiting for the person to stop talking so that you can just like machine gun out your, <laughs> your arguments against them. I hope something sticks. Yeah, and you're like, oh, I'm so angry. I'm just gonna yell at them and it feels good. But you know, when that person wasn't listening to you, uh, you know, were you really listening to them? Were you really taking any facts? We felt it ourselves. We also know from the data, from the science, I love, I love science. I'm a science nerd. I've got my microscope sitting right behind us here. Yeah, um, I got a few of them. Uh, you know, I got a TED talk. I'm a fucking nerd. Nice. Uh, <laughs> so I love the data science and the data also shows that we don't get change. Where we get the change is by doing the self-sacrifice of holding back ourselves from those moments of anger and instead extending a compassionate curiosity to the point that we can get with deep canvassing a one in nine person change. Mm. Once again, that's 11%. Jesus. 
it's worthwhile. Yeah. So if I now know as someone who loves facts and someone who actually wants to make the world better, if I now know that there is a better way to do these things, if there is a way that I can actually help people that is better than what I am doing now, and I get to make a choice in each conversation, do I do what I know is going to make the world better or do I do what is going to make myself better? And everyone else gets to make that decision as well. And I would just hope that people reflect on that and realize that if you really want to make the world better, you're going to have to do a lot of self-sacrifice in the most difficult way possible of just holding back your anger and being compassionately curious to Nazis, which, which sounds, it's, it's hard. I've, I have a lot of conversations that it, you're sitting there, you're biting your tongue, and you have to like mentally kind of just get yourself back to like the, okay, okay, like just kind of baseline reset, get your own limbic system, get out of your own limbic mm -hmm. system. And that's where that emotional intelligence I think matters yes. the most is to be able to get that out of your own head, calm down, not yell, not punch the Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> and then ask, do you, you know, have you actually known any black people before? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Have you ever yeah. tried uh, talking to yeah. <laughs> I had a conversation. Yeah. <laughs> and, and doing that compassionate curiosity. And again, you don't have to be like, you're right. We should kill all the black people. Just yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Just extending a compassionate curiosity in a space where they can be wrong so that mm. they can learn how to be right. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. And, and it's kind of making me think that that overall question about like, emotional intelligence in those conversations it sounds like in order for it to really be effective and to kind of uh, achieve that distinction like you're talking about about you know making the world a better place versus just feeling good you know mm -hmm. just feeling like ha, I did yeah, it. I did, yeah 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 um, high five we did it reddit Ooh, yeah um it's it was more about like paying attention to your own triggers and paying attention to your own reactions to ensure that like you can you can maintain that space like you said for them to to be wrong but in a safe way and that's i think that's something a skill that i'm really wanting to hone is to be able to like say like okay i think i see where you're coming from i i think i understand that i'll be honest maybe that's kind of making me that's uh, I can feel a little bit of reactivity welling up in me but I want you to know you know just being able to kind of like build the conversations that way um and to have that uh, oh how did you phrase it, it was like compassionate uh, compassionate curiosity compassionate curiosity let's use that in deep canvassing and also uh, street epistemology mm -hmm. and it's it is uh it's it's a little it's a little difficult uh again mm -hmm. it's it's difficult it's something you, you practice you fuck up and then you just keep trying mm -hmm. to do better and better um each each next conversation that you have yeah and it and you know it's really worthwhile because um you know I, I really like to operate on the on the understanding that um you know i know nothing but that <laughs> but my you know my own experience and that's it and so i think um i've been utilizing a type of compassionate curiosity where i'm just sort of like throw it at me let's let's see let's see what 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 you're really trying to say like tell me what you're actually trying to believe here and then um and then sort of being able to be like well these are my values these are still the things that that i truly believe in and i'm and you know we're also not going to concede our values right at the you know at some like haphazard haphazard facts or whatever from this other person we're still going to maintain our own values as well um in those conversations and i think that um all of the techniques and skills that you're talking about to maintain that um, are just going to be so valuable. Well, and there's a, there is a principle of street epistemology that I love, um, and that is this, this also helps you get into the right mindset. It's, again, very difficult. But 
with street epistemology, one of their fundamentals is you have to go into every conversation, not necessarily, again, trying to change someone's mind, but you guys are both exploring how they reach their conclusion. Mm. And you have to be willing to, if they have a better reason for believing something than you do, you have to also be willing to move. Mm. So it's, it's, if your goal in your pursuit, excuse me, is what's right, then you don't necessarily have to give up your values, but you have to realize, oh, maybe my value is also coming from a misplaced area. Mm-hmm. And that helps you together, rather than, again, being two people that are combative against each other, you both, instead of becoming soldiers fighting, you both become scouts exploring mm. how they reach their idea. And maybe you realize, oh, hey, you know, actually, I, uh, I might have been wrong on this myself. Mm-hmm. And again, you don't have to change your entire belief system overnight, but then at least be willing to honestly reanalyze how you reached the place mm-hmm. that you were at. Which is I, really helpful. I love that thought process, the the scout versus soldier. It, it actually reminds me of uh, Brene Brown's book, Dare to Lead. And one of the things she talks about is um, you try to make right instead of be right. And that's that's kind of exactly yeah. what that's making me think of because it, it's willing to be able to be open and be vulnerable in those types of conversations, in those spaces, to be able to, you know, self-reflect. Like, you know what? Maybe I never really thought about where that idea came from. Maybe it was just kind of a traumatic experience that um that i had and i had never really resolved and i built some other ideas Mm -hmm. on top of that and i had no idea um i think that's how we can really um, make these conversations even more valuable it's not it's not always going to be about i've got to change their mind but also like wow i learned something i learned a lot about like myself and and the ways that i think so that now i can approach um other conversations in a much better way well and my personal philosophy that i try to go by is that I do want to be right. I want to always be right, but the reason I want to be right is because I stopped believing things that were wrong. <laughs> Not just because I am. Yeah, just because yeah. I entered in the conversation is like, fuck you, I'm right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which I've had many of those, plenty haughty times in, in the past where I've, <laughs> I remember one time just yelling at a, 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 a group of people, um, just shut up and listen to me, I'm a genius, uh, which... Not very effective. Oh, not. It was a bad. Like I'm literally reflecting on it still, like ten years later, and it's just like one of the cringiest moments um, in my life that there is. So I actually have. So if you want, I can kind of go through the kind of the conversational basics of what I'm trying to meld together right now with deep canvassing mm-hmm. and street epistemology. That's going to kind of be used to the church of protests. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was, as kind of the methodology. Yes. Perfect. That that was going to be my next question. Is you know you mentioned that um, you know you have this organization called the Church of Protest. Um, yeah, please do tell us what that is. It sounds like it's it's a meshing of all of these different t- techniques that you've been talking about. Uh, so that's what, kind of, yeah. So the, the church protests, um, for the people that were in Salt Lake City back during the George Floyd uh, protests of 2020, uh, our city ended up having a curfew imposed by the mayor that said you cannot assemble in groups of people uh, after 10 p.m. unless you are part of a religious organization, which it seemed like a very selective part of the First Amendment for me, but more importantly to me, I've been an activist on the ground since I was camp counselor at the Occupy Movement in Las Vegas, where we had the first legal Occupy Movement that lasted for months mm. um, on end. Like, my name was on the lease. Like, this is this is for me something I lived on a site, like, 24-7. I was raised Jehovah's Witness, but for me, fighting for for equality uh, for, for everyone is something that is more deeply ingrained and feels like a higher calling to me than even my religious upbringing was. And it's really, this. it feels, I know a lot of, I talked to a lot of other activists where they're like, yeah, this doesn't feel like it's just me. Like, this feels like something I have to do, like I'm compelled to do, like it is some sort of greater force mm. that is just making me do this. And like, I, that's why I can't stop sort of thing. Um, and so when there was, you know, this thing of, well, 
if it's a spiritual belief, you can meet together. But if it's not a spiritual belief, uh, we're going to ignore that part of the First Amendment. Mm-hmm. Kind of wrinkled my hairs um, a little bit. And so we started doing a biweekly protest of the of Salt Lake City's Mayor, Mayor Mendenhall, uh, back in November of 2021, uh, when she canceled the community activist group meeting she'd been doing. And, you know, I, I was worried that she might try to impose other curfews or they might happen again in the future where my this thing to me that is this deep spiritual calling was going to be ignored and discriminated against in favor of you know these other things that people found to be deep spiritual spiritual callings mm-hmm. and so you know I looked deep into uh, my heart and I looked deep into the legal qualifications to become a church uh, from both the IRS and the state of Utah and it turned out that not only did we hold the deep spiritual beliefs um, and the things necessary to meet the qualifications, but I also had the $127 and five minutes of time that it took to file the paperwork. <laughs> uh, so the, the Church of Protest is really just for people that are, are dedicated and who feel this innate spiritual calling uh, in, in or just this deep calling to fight for equality. Where, there is, where it is something more than just a thought, it really is such a deep core belief and spiritual value in you. And, um, you know, there's... Uh, Right now, primarily what uh, what the church is doing is you know, helping coordinate different protests uh, and help people to be able to express and, and fight for that equality. Uh, spoke up at the at the Capitol recently to kind of be able to express to the the, the leaders of, that were making these rules about how some of the rules they were going to do about transgender health care were going to be infringing on the rights, uh, the, the spiritual beliefs and rights of, of our members. Um, also, the church very firmly believes that uh, you know, in the right of bodily autonomy, as that person having an equal right to their body, as uh, you know, a man would have an equal right to his body, or someone who is uh, assigned male at birth. And so, right now, uh, we haven't begun the, this whole ministry section, or like the the radically kind of changing how people have conversations, and this, because I kind of need to fuse it together. Uh, but in the meantime, still trying to fight for equality uh, when possible. Mm-hmm. So the goal was to take these principles from deep canvassing, to take these principles from street epistemology, to take the principles from motivated interviewing, which is part of psychology, to take, uh, you know, other pieces of sociology, psychology, things about establishing relationships, like even some stuff from Dale Carnegie's classic book, and combine them into a method that helps activism be more effective by having a framework that you can use not only if you want to go door to door or just stand out in public, and canvas, but that you can have at the dinner table, that you can have conversations with friends, and ideally that you can even deliver in speeches to help people self-reflect. Mm-hmm. Um, so right, this is still kind of this is still being meshed and work together. But so when you when you're starting a conversation, if you need to figure out what you're going to be talking about, if you don't already have a conversation going, you can kind of ask a question that will kind of stimulate someone's belief or someone's claim. If you're not looking at something specific, so you know, like you know, asking them who they voted for, and then kind of figuring out why, and that'll help you kind of dig into some beliefs. Because if you just ask someone, street epistemology often will say, "Well, uh, what's a claim you want to discuss?" Mm. Uh, which people kind of get frozen and like, uh, "I don't, I don't, I don't know what I, I believe. Right I don't now. know what I believe in." <laughs> yeah. um, God, God, God. I think that's it. it. And but this gives you a way to kind of naturally stimulate a claim of something they actually care about. Mm. Um, kind of want to establish a friendly base so this kind of goes back to you know dale carnegie and marketing sales but just ask questions where ideally you know the answer is going to be getting them kind of more geared towards yes and positive mm-hmm. so you know if you happen to be talking to someone on a hiking trail like did you have a really good hike today you know mm-hmm. like isn't this just a gorgeous day yeah. um and could, once again friendly things where you're kind of giving them more of a positive attitude and not trying to be negative like oh 
doesn't the rain suck? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Keep positivity there. And then a really important piece is to upfront in your conversations, model how you want the conversation to go. If you want your conversation to be civil, you have to start with your conversation being civil. Uh, you have to set that groundwork of how you expect things to go. And even to say like, hey, I just really want this to be a really friendly conversation, like where we can like respect each other and take turns and not talk each over each other. You know, mm. if, if you're okay with doing that, I you know, agree to do the same thing. Um, I really like the idea of kind of exemplifying what you want to see in the conversation, but also what you want to see in the other person. So I like giving a, an example of, of how a lot of people feel like if they change their mind on something, that that's going to make them look stupid. Mm, yeah. So instead, up front, encouraging the idea of, you know, one of my favorite things about having discussions with people is that, you know, is, is that I get to learn new things. And sometimes I find out that I'm actually wrong about things. Mm. And I really value when I get to learn what actually is correct. And I actually, uh, I appreciate that a lot more than having discussions with people that we've all had that discussion with that person who refuses to admit they're wrong. Yeah. Like, you know, and everyone else is like, we know you're wrong, Dale. And he's like, no, I'm right. <laughs> and it, it never makes a person look smart. It makes them look yeah. dumb. So I always love when I get to, you know, learn new things and, and you know, maybe become more right myself. So you, you model that up front. You remove that psychological barrier where changing their opinion would be a negative. You, you'll, like, literally say that, like, yeah. at the beginning of the conversation. That is yeah. awesome. I absolutely love that because you're right. Like, and I almost, I, it, maybe it's just, you know, my perspective, but I almost see that as a sign of intelligence. Mm -hmm. Like, if someone can actually just be like, hmm, okay, you know, I've never considered it that way instead of, like you said, just like, nope, I'm right, yeah. I'm right, you know. <laughs> and that's that helps you psychologically set the, the parameter of what, what is a value or what is a win in the conversation, yeah. not as them being right, but by you being right together. Mm. So you're literally framing it and changing what a win would be. Oh, I uh, love that. And encouraging towards that. Uh, a good thing after that, like once you figure out what you're talking about, is figuring out where the source of this idea came from. Some of the things you can do is ask, you know, where's the first place that you, you know, heard about this? Because for some people, it'll go all the way back to as a child in church. And you may not have gotten to that in a short conversation. But because you'd have otherwise, if you started somewhere else, you'd have had to eventually dig back to, oh, well, this is actually, I guess it's just something I've always believed, which happens a lot if you watch street mm -hmm. epistemology videos. It was like they've wasted six, seven minutes up front. But if you just ask, you know, where's the first place that, you know, you heard about this? Um, and then asking uh, from there, you know, what what made you, you know, want to do this thing or, or made you want to believe this thing, that'll help you establish not only where they heard it, but their motivation for doing it, which is going to tell you their values. Because mm -hmm. we may think that someone's doing something because they're evil, but they may think they're doing it because it's from a, a, a stance of love. Yeah. And if you know their value is, well, you know, I really want to help my neighbor out, or, you know, I really want to save people from going to hell, uh, you, you then know it's love, and then that's where you can frame everything from. When you're trying to show them then how their values are actually maybe aligning with something differently. Mm, like um, that. And that's a good thing where if it's maybe something they found later in life, then you can ask them, you know, where's the time that you didn't, you know, believe or think this thing? And then but you won't necessarily want to focus on uh, for sure what made them believe, but find that core inspiration and also find out maybe why they didn't believe before, because that'll tell you like some maybe maybe some doubts that they've already thought through that you can avoid, or more specifically, it might be able to raise some questions where you can figure out you know if there is some doubt that exists. Um, that's actually where street epistemology is really and deep canvassing has that scale of one to ten of like mm -hmm. so 
And like on a scale, like with this belief, like on a scale of, you know, one to 10, meaning that, you know, one means that I absolutely don't believe it at all. Or, and you know, like 10 means this is, you know, I will never question it and never doubt it mm. and figuring out where they lie on that. And some people will default to 10. Um, I've thought about using different scales where people won't feel so extreme, but at least yeah. right now from one to 10, uh, you know, if it's a hundred percent, then you can kind of look at whether or not there's any chance of fallibility mm. uh, as kind of being the source of where you start looking at it. Um, if you, if it's kind of like a, a seven to like a nine, nine and a half, then you can look at the source of their confidence, like how, why they're so confident up to that point in time. And a really important thing is to ask them if it's not a 10, why isn't it a 10? Mm. Because now you're actually having them analyze why they aren't maybe quite so sure in this. That's really smart. And like you're that. having them kind of question their own thought process because you're not going to change their mind. You can't do that. They can, they're the only people that can change their mind. Yeah. And so you're kind of helping them think through that. And then, you know, if it's below maybe a, a, you know, a five, then you can even ask like, so if it's not really that important, you're not really that sure. And like, why do you even still hold this belief? Mm. And maybe that will explore to you, will help you explore, uh, you know, a deeper, a deeper value Mm. that maybe even they didn't realize like yeah. well this is you know again going back to like, well this is how i was raised you know i just mm. feel like i have to do this because this is how i was raised yeah. um and you can kind of connect on that too yeah. yeah and that's so these are all giving you things to build off from later in the conversation to start digging in and this is why these conversations take a while mm, yeah <laughs> when you're doing them um and then there's i gotta figure out a better way to, for the wording of this but you know looking at whether or not they, there's any possibility they might be willing to, to reanalyze things uh, mm -hmm. is, you know, uh, what evidence, you know, would maybe change your, your confidence level in that mm -hmm. and seeing if there's something they, they can think of or they know that might actually be an area where you can work off of and, and, and use some later skills. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have those established of maybe why they don't believe so firmly in it, any doubts that they've had in it, and, you know, something that might actually make them reconsider things later on. Mm -hmm. And then you can move into the to the more general part of the conversation, um, and that's going to start with getting definitions. There's so many times we have discussions where we're talking past each other because we think we both know what we're talking about. Yeah. My favorite example that I like to to tell people, because um, I'm a stand-up comedian also is a, kind of a, a joke I tell, is I was having a conversation, so I am half black. I know you can't tell from the voice and the fact that my name's Colin, but I'm half black, uh, and I was having a conversation with my... A girlfriend at the time who is white and raised in Kaysville, Utah, which if you don't know Kaysville, Utah, it's where people in Utah moved when they felt that Salt Lake City was getting too urban. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's that. Uh, and so her frame of reference is like from a different point in life. So she walks in and asks me um, a question that is the title of a, a video of one of her favorite YouTubers, uh, ContraPoints. Is the, it's a trans YouTuber. And she just asks me the title of the episode with no context. And she says, uh, do you think traps are gay? Which I am again, half black. My reference for trap <laughs> is, is as a, a place or a house where you would buy and use drugs. Mm -hmm. And her reference is only from watching this YouTuber where they're talking about this thing that's kind of a homophobic uh, slur uh, against trans people. And I assume that my definition is correct. Yeah. That, and, but in the meantime, I'm also confused because I'm like, did Pixar make a movie I don't know about? <laughs> like, is this, I am so, but I'm still trying to answer for my, because I didn't clarify the definition. So yeah. like, I'm saying things that sound very transphobic at this point in time to her because I'm like, well, I mean, 
uh, I've been inside one, but I wouldn't want to go in one again. <laughs> and it wasn't until like a few minutes in where we clarified. I was like, oh, we are talking about I, I, completely yeah, different. We were having completely different conversations. We had minutes of conversation oh, that, were, that were drastically different. So if you don't get those clarifications on definition, you might think that you're talking about something. But in reality, you were you were talking past each other. That is a um, huge <laughs> piece. Holy yeah. cow! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So getting definitions kind of and kind of narrowing down, like so. Oh, you know, when you say when you're talking about something like you know uh, astrology, what do you actually mean by that? Or when you talk about karma, what do you actually mean by karma? Or what do you mean by you know God or any of these you know topics is really important. Mm, I like that. Yeah. So making sure that you know what you're talking about. So you can have an earnest conversation and then making sure that you use open-ended questions. Ideally, you don't want to just go for yes or no questions. Mm -hmm. uh, you want to give them a time to respond. And with deep canvassing, especially, they emphasize using stories. Um, so trying to, with, with open-ended questions, inspire stories about times or things that relate back to them in their life. And then using their own stories as examples later on when you're circling back to things. So being able to have that baseline where you're not, again, you're not arguing with them with facts. You're not throwing numbers at them. You're using their own experiences in life to help them self-reflect later on. And it's, it's really more ideal to be able to stick to one one illustration to one story one illustration it can be tempting where they'll bring something else up try to tie it back to the one thread so you don't end up wandering around into a yeah. bunch of different places mm -hmm. so you're not in a bunch of threads and questions and that way you can always at least loop back to you know so reference you know talking talking again about your your time with your wife you know even if you stray back you can go back to that whatever that story was yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's a really good thing um in in debates especially if you're a really good debater you want to be able to make the other person's argument better than they made it. Mm. So in order to make sure not only that you understand what they said, but so that they know you're not trying to misrepresent what they said, it's really good to be able to, when they say something important, try to re-summarize it, what they said, and then make sure that they know that it's a safe space for them to say, no, that's not what I meant. I was yeah. like, okay, sorry, I completely, that's that's why I wanted to make sure. That's a huge piece of these kinds of conversations, yeah. for sure. And it helps you kind of clarify any, uh, any more places you might be talking past each other. They also then are going to understand that you are really being honest mm. in wanting to understand what they mean mm -hmm. and that you're not just trying to make some sort of straw man argument back at them. And it's really good. Uh, so when talking about not having to lose your values, it's you don't necessarily have to agree with someone when they say something. You can just go, hmm, interesting. You know, yeah. you can use different, you don't have to be like, yeah, you're right. Or uh, you can just say like, oh, that's a really interesting way to look at it. I yeah. never looked at it that way before. Yeah. You can be honest without using agreeing terms or with you, without using attacking terms. And I'm a huge fan of using more unifying terms. So things like we, mm. uh, when you're referencing things. So this deep canvas script that uh, I'm going to be using here later today, uh, one of the things that kind of threw me a little bit on that script where I would modify it is that it's talking about workers' rights. And when I, there's a part that I would reframe to when you're having a conversation with someone, because they're probably, you know, labor class workers as well, of reminding them that you and them are on the same side of, you know, this labor, uh, this labor piece. You guys are both together. You guys are both those scouts exploring together mm. and that you have that commonality. Um, another really important thing when you're talking is what uh, street epistemology nicknames the spider on the ceiling moment. We don't like silencing conversations. Y'all how, how uncomfortable that was? <laughs> I know. We're used to trying to fill it. I talk a lot. Yeah. Um, but the idea is sometimes people are going to want you to respond to something or you're going to want to cut them off. 
But if they're having that moment of kind of like self-reflection, just leaving a silence, and then they kind of have to fill it uh, with like a follow-up of, of uh, you know, whatever their thought was, rather than you trying to like rebut it. And it kind of gives them that moment of self-reflection and will be uncomfortable a little bit, but it's more important to, again, have them be self-reflective and have them guiding the change versus you trying to just say the next thing. Yeah. So when That's you cool. see those like moments where it looks like someone's just kind of like thinking like, hmm, and look, they're looking at a spider at the ceiling. Don't interrupt that. Yeah. That silence is golden. Give them a chance to think. Oh, that's and beautiful. Back. I love that. Yeah. That's, that's a great technique. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's all about encouraging this open environment and, again, setting those frameworks of where the win in the conversation is not for them to be right. It's not for you to be right. It's for you guys to work together to explore what's right. Mm. And so when... I'm a big fan of complimenting people. You know, when they do say something and they go like, well, you know, I guess this is a thing, but whatever. I'm like, you know, I, I really commend you. Like, just honestly say like, I, I really commend you. Like, I know a lot of people that I've talked to aren't willing, you know, to, to acknowledge that. that. Yeah. yeah like, like I'm, I'm so glad that you can see the humanity there mm. and authentically commend when they do something that is good, when they recognize those. You want to give, you know, rewards that the whole Pavlov's dog thing yeah. But with people, really, people react better long-term to rewards than to sticks. Yep. So don't yell at them when they're wrong. Compliment them when they're right. Yeah, I love that. It's going to go that. a lot better. Mm -hmm. a, you know, and creating that positive environment, um, you want to point out anytime you can similarities between you and the other person. Mm. Um, for me, a big thing, again, going back to complimenting change mm -hmm. is that idea of, when they, someone makes or realizes they made a mistake, I want to point out a time I made a similar mistake. Because mm. that way, now all of a sudden, I'm not the person going, ha ha, you were wrong. I was, I was right. I can go like, I had the same thing happen. Like, dude, we are so human, aren't we? Like, <laughs> like I know. I was, I was, I, and I know I felt bad afterwards. But then, and this is where I do like a call for change. Like, I felt bad after, was it, after I did it. But then I was like, oh, wait, hold on. That's a mistake I made before. That doesn't mean I can't try to fix it now. Yeah. Like, it doesn't mean I can't try to, like, now I can make up. Like, I was wrong. But that means I can make up for everything that I did. I can make up for the, wow. you know, the, I was wrong when I yelled at my girlfriend about that. Now I can, rather than being the asshole who just yelled, I can go back and be like, you know what? I am really sorry. I want us to have a good relationship. That wasn't good communication. I was yelling. Yeah. So, so complimenting, not putting yourself on a pedestal, but making sure you guys stay at that same human level by pointing out the similarities. But still outlining like progression yeah. and, and that, that progression is possible. Mm -hmm. I love that. I yeah. love that so much. And that's kind of one of those call to action steps. Uh, and then, you know, recognizing once again that learning from mistakes is the most important thing. Um, I always personally say that a mistake is only a mistake if you didn't learn from it mm. like there's so many messed up things that we all do imperfectly usually from a good place sometimes just from humanity sometimes from a momentary weakness but i believe no one is beyond redemption as long as they're willing to walk a path to redemption which first involves admitting the mistake and then learning from that mistake and trying to make up for the mistake after that it's beautiful i love that so uh those, those principles were kind of for the general conversation i like to make sure you're trying to tie back into the main conversation and kind of re-articulate if they did have any doubts about something kind of like re-articulate kind of bring that back in and try to see how that fits into you know maybe what you've been talking about so like you know oh you, you know you mentioned that you know there was a situation where maybe it seemed like karma wasn't working correctly um does this seem does this other scenario you just brought up seem like another situation where maybe karma wasn't working correctly mm. or whatever the topic is so trying to find those anchor points and just kind of 
melding the conversation, just kind of folding pizza dough back in on itself so that you eventually end up with this complete project of, of a conversation. Yeah. Um, there's some specific skills. I know this is going on a little, little long. These are f so many principles that take so long. Like I spent six months before I even talked to my dad of just practicing things. Mm. So if you're like, this is so much, that's okay. Like yeah. start, start with one or two principles of compassion and curiosity. Go on from there yeah. and just try to build more along the way. Normalize them in your toolbox yeah. so that it's, it's easier to kind of to use these tools as you're having these kinds of conversations. Yeah. Just have it become more of a day-to-day -day thing. Mm. And so one of the big tools in street epistemology is what's known as the outsider test. And the outsider test is, again, it's comparing someone's belief to someone who would hold the opposite belief and seeing if they would consider the basis for that belief just as valid. So, you know, if do you think that someone with an opposite belief uh, would be just as valid? I like to to do a little extra, what I call the outsider test too, which is, do you think that there's any way that someone, you know, holding that opposite belief, can you see that a way that that belief might be harming people? Mm -hmm. So, you know, people who who have, it's easy to use religion. Mm -hmm. You know, people usually can find a way that another religion is harming people. And so if their belief isn't really coming from this true place, you know, do you think it could be, you know, causing any harm do you think there's any way that maybe you holding this belief especially if it's not a strong one might actually be hurting other people because i want to again give that humanity and make them kind of think about like oh because a lot of people think oh my belief is harmless who cares mm -hmm. like especially there's some like middle of road stuff like you know astrology or karma and they're like who mm -hmm. cares if i believe in this it's just a fun silly little thing yeah and so kind of being able to reflect on you know what is there any way that this might there might actually be a danger in holding this mm -hmm. that ends up hurting other humans um, I like avoiding hypothetical outsider tests. So sometimes people will talk, there's the famous Carl Sagan about a, a, a magical hovering invisible dragon in the garage. Mm. And it's it, too abstract in your opinion. It's, it's not going to connect emotionally because mm. people aren't making logical decisions. They're making emotional decisions. Mm -hmm. So I want to connect back to the emotion as much as possible. So I want to keep that hypothetical or that test, that outsider test in something that could be real that they could relate to. So again, going Christian Muslims, you know, talking again of, you know, uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of people talk about how, you know, Muslims oppress uh, women in Saudi Arabia or something. So you, you see how their, you know, beliefs about women not being equal creates this system where these women are being oppressed. Do you think that there's maybe anything about, you know, your particular religious belief that might actually, you know, prevent women from being viewed as equals sort mm -hmm. of thing? So it's going to make them have a realistic reflection versus trying to compare it to this imaginary dragon. Yeah, yeah, that makes exists. sense. Um, and then I want to find especially opposite or te op outsider tests that are not just opposite of what they believe, but are things that they would be morally opposed to. Mm. So again, from that factual basis. So sometimes people will say, you know, beliefs, if you believe something, it makes it true. Mm. So having a question of something like, you know, a lot of people feel the way, but you know, if, if, Maybe I've had some conversations with actual Nazis, I've had, like or former Nazis, and you know they truly believed that black people were inferior to white people. Do you think that them believing that, just believing that, in any way makes it true? Mm. So it's going to cause this thing where I want to trigger not only them to self-reflect, but also have this realization of moral disgust that, oh, people could use this fact, this base, this logical basis for some really awful things. Mm. Maybe this isn't the best reason to believe something, yeah. because if I can believe, if something is true just because I believe it, then that means that, 
you know, some really awful things can be yeah. true just off of belief alone. I think that's really smart because it, it sort of forces them to just look at that and say, like, is that really a good enough, like, foundation for those beliefs? Mm -hmm. it, I mean, it, that argument alone makes it pretty obvious that no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then so that those, the outsider test is a big tool. And then one of the things at the end of the conversation, when you've used as many of these tools as possible, first of all, even if it goes horribly, like, end it civilly, like, say, you know, I know this really kind of didn't end up how I thought it was. I'm sorry I yelled. Like, it was, mm -hmm. this kind of went off the rails. But I really appreciate you actually being willing to take the time and have this discussion mm -hmm. and and try to wrap it up on a positive note. If it is if it is still positive, um, try to wrap back to that, the main issue and kind of recovering like re reiterate re restate and especially if their confidence has lowered so kind of asking again like on scale of one to ten do you still feel that that same way and then if it's kind of shifted down enough you know is it really a necess necessity for you to hold that belief if mm. it's if we've kind of realized and you again you don't have to say don't believe that anymore just yeah is it still so necessary uh, apologizing for those conversational missteps uh trying to leave them with a contemplative question so something that they're going to kind of think of and take away. And this mm -hmm. is a good time for that call to action. So, you know, again, saying if we're talking about something like gay rights, you know, and maybe you've been talking about their their brother who who is gay and who, you know, there was he was fired from his job back in 2005 because they found out he was gay and there weren't worker protections back then. You know, if, if you're circling back to to that and saying, you know, you know, so now that we've kind of discussed this and you realize how much this affected your brother, you know, I just want you to think, like, you know, again, the next time that you're kind of going to a voting booth and voting for this politician that's against gay rights, do you think that they would want to take, would they be willing to or want to take those rights away from your brother? And, you know, is, is how important is that to you? And just... It just again, I hope you think about that. Like, don't tell them what to do, but just kind of mm -hmm. get them to reflect and associate back, and leave them with a contemplative question in a positive way that will help them help themselves and help others. Mm. Wow, so that's that's the long, long breakdown. Okay, but here's the thing: like, it is amazing because I feel like you've really operationalized this this technique to just have very valuable conversations with people. And, and I love that overall it's not like you're even establishing it up front. Like, like I'm not trying to be right. I'm not trying to make you feel wrong. I just want us to have this conversation um, that really is, is not present in most of our daily lives. Like we just don't have access to these kinds of tools. And I, I absolutely love this, this entire process um, all of these different tools, and I will be using them. And um, and I, I think we'll actually wrap it up here, mm -hmm. but I really appreciate you going through all of that um, and explaining these tools because I think that these, these are going to be very valuable um, methods and techniques just for people to start having more healthy conversations because um, if we can really normalize these kinds of um, techniques and, and just these conversations overall, like it's, it's going to be so much easier for people to actually – um, handle very complex, controversial, and uh, and triggering situations because they they actually are, for one thing, caring about what the other person <laughs> thinks and where they're coming from, and and trying to um, maintain their humanity, which I think uh, you can't really go wrong if you're if you're focused on that. It's 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 the good if you can't do anything else, it's be compassionately curious and maintain the humanity, mm. and then from there try to ask questions instead of making statements that 
start with those two, go through the rest. Uh, once again, these are based off of street epistemology and deep canvassing, both you can check out separately uh, and, and highly encourage everyone to see and learn everything they can on those because they're fantastic frameworks in themselves. Perfect. Wow. Thank you so much. Um, before we end, uh, is there anything that people can do to help support the, the Church of Protest or uh, support you um, in any way? Uh, so Church of Protest doesn't really handle anything like donation-wise or anything like that. Um, th there's now some social media that some more things will come through over there. So it's uh, at Church of Protest, I think, on all their major social medias, uh, mm -hmm. except we're not tweeting for a lot of reasons. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but primarily, uh, try, try, if you want to do anything, start by using these principles in your day-to-day -day conversations. Uh, the framework will be coming out more through the like trying to make official videos and things like that but the start using these principles in your conversations it's not about necessarily supporting the church or supporting one specific idea it's about supporting a, a better way for us to all reach our ideas and have effective activism that is beautiful thank you so much colin i really appreciate it thank you nathan Thank you so much for listening to episode 27 of the Kindness Rebellion. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I know I did. It just had so many great ideas. So thank you, Colin, for sharing these ideas with us and explaining it in such a profound way so that we can really take these into our lives, practice with them, and especially practice with them. It's not going to be perfect every time. You know, I've had conversations where I try to use techniques like these that I didn't realize were like techniques and uh, and they totally bombed like it just didn't work out and uh, one of the reasons I've been able to pr improve is because I kept doing it and because I've been able to talk with people like Colin and get these ideas into more uh, you know useful action so make sure to uh, try those out let us know how it, how how this goes you know let us know when you have these conversations by uh, commenting on these posts and liking and sharing and subscribing just let us know that you like the podcast uh, and thank you again so much for listening